You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, here with my steady and brilliant co-host, Yvette. Thanks, Elisa. Right back at you. We have a news roundup for you today that we could style the death of an empire. It's a tad dreary. Yes, indeed it is. But uh, boy, there's a lot going on out there. Let me just say, China, China, China. What's going on? All right. So do you want to kick it off, Yvette? What's the first little item? We read this week that Russia and China are doing joint military exercises in the Sea of Japan. For those of you keeping score at home, those are our greatest geopolitical adversaries. And it's frightening that they are teaming up. Russia bragged that they had chased off a U.S. naval vessel during the exercises. And this is not bueno. No bueno. Not good. No bueno. No bueno. I don't like the phrase Russia and China are engaged in joint military exercises. I don't like that. Yeah. I want to never hear that again. Okay. But if that's not enough, in other alarming news, last week, the Pentagon's first chief software officer resigned in protest at the slow pace of technological transformation in the U.S. military. So his name was Nicholas Chilon. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he told the Financial Times that the failure of the United States to respond to Chinese cyber and other threats was putting his children's future at risk. He added that the United States had already lost the war for primacy in artificial intelligence to China. And he called it, this is a quote, a done deal. I got to say, as a veteran and veteran user of DOD systems, I am saddened to hear that this (laughs) persistent problem took this professional out. But I can't say that I'm very surprised. This has been a perennial challenge at the Pentagon and beyond. And we've had several casts that we can refer you back to on artificial intelligence if you want to do a deep dive on those. Most recently, our cast with Judge Jamie Baker. So please go and check that out. We also can hearken back to friend of the pod, Josh Meltzer of the Brookings Institute, who we spoke to several years ago, who opined that we need international cooperation on artificial intelligence. We will link to that show in our show notes. So I think like the bottom line is if we have no bargaining power, it's going to be really ineffective when it comes time to negotiate. Challenge for our listeners, what laws could be used to develop or improve the state? Assuming what Chilon said here is true, please email us at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Yes. So, and Sun Tzu said the greatest way to defeat the enemy is not to have to fight him. So um, I would say we're in, living in interesting times. I prefer not to but I believe it's happening. Okay, so if that weren't enough, uh, we've also learned this week that China has made a huge and startling military leap forward. They have just tested, although they're denying it, that means they did. They've just tested a hypersonic missile technology. And Yvette, as I understand it, this means that the missile tested, which is nuclear capable, by the way, it's not carrying um, chiclets, circles the globe before speeding toward its target. It can also be maneuvered. And in that regard, apparently can negate the U.S. missile defense systems. Um, And so that is not at all what you'd want to hear right after the Pentagon's big cyber dude says, I'm out of here because you can't keep up and you're not even trying. Understatement of the century, Elisa. Quite terrifying. In fact, 
I heard the test of this missile and I was pretty impressed with the Chinese government's gymnastics around the denial where they denied it, but they also said, we did this months ago. So your intelligence also sucks. So we didn't do it, but if we did it, you didn't even detect it months ago when we did it, um, which killed me slowly and rapidly at the same time. Um, okay. But wow. we also wow. have an issue with China and their very real energy crisis. They are experiencing rolling blackouts. And this crisis is playing out in continents as far away as Europe. You might remember that under the Trump administration, we had some tension with Germany and the former leader, uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. The precise issue was not just payment into NATO by member nations, but also the natural gas pipeline that would run from Germany to Russia and would ensure that Germans were reliant on Russia for basic life needs like cooking and heating gas. Oh, and you might remember that this is probably, you know, thinking of it from maybe Putin's terms as they were described to us by Rob Dannenberg, who was the former Moscow station chief twice for the CIA. You know, Putin really is threatened by NATO and the EU. He sees them as an encroachment. He was literally a KGB agent not so far from the wall, the Berlin Wall, when it came down. And, um, you know, he's been trying to find a way to reclaim ground in Europe. So now he's saying, of course, that Europeans really should negotiate with them. Uh, I'm not sure they're left with too many other options as the winter approaches. But one, this raises a very important topic, and it's one we're going to flesh out a little bit more in a minute, which is the role of energy in national security, kind of where we are and where we might go. Well, this was one of our very first podcasts. You and I share our rising sense of dread about our climate situation, the fact that we can't get broad cooperation that we need in order to counter what climate scientists regularly talk about is the decade of action. Um, it's not going so well. <laughs> Um, and if you listen to the Skolans podcast we had with Director of National Intelligence, Real Haynes, last week, you know that she is as concerned as we are about the big impact of climate change and how much of a big deal it is with respect to the intelligence community and its work. If you uh, have a chance to listen back to that cast we did on climate change and national security, you'll know that the U.S. Navy has had to plan for climate change. And that is in not so far away Norfolk, Virginia, where the sea levels rise, has the potential to threaten strategically important fleets. We recognize that we have some really big problems with our dependence on fossil fuels, and that compounds Europe's now dependence on Russia for natural gas. We are thinking about possible solutions, since uh, solutions really do drive developments in the law. You know, when I think about this stuff, I recognize I am not the expert in the room. I am a concerned human, a concerned American, and obviously a concerned parent. But what I like to do when I get this sense of dread is I like to call up a girlfriend who has expertise and say, let's talk this over. I'm not thinking about walking out into the middle of the street and waiting for a truck to hit me. I really would like to see us reserve our primacy globally, and I'd like to see us address energy issues. So I thought... How about if I turn to someone who advises companies on how to manage unpredictable energy prices? So I went to my friend Elaine Levin, president of Powerhouse. Hey, Elaine, thanks for hanging out again. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Elaine, it's so cool to have you on the cast. Could you just start off with telling me what your company does and like how you're contributing to climate solutions? Well, Powerhouse helps companies control profit margins and grow their business through hedging. Companies hedge using financial instruments like futures, options, and swaps. So I'm a licensed futures broker. But beyond that, we also help our customers in everything from strategy to execution of the hedges. So not only do we have to understand the finance and the financial instruments, but we're constantly monitoring the global markets in order to advise our clients. That means we're looking at supply, demand, geopolitics, domestic politics, and even the weather. So our customers run the whole spectrum Everything from producers of energy to refiners, marketers, and ultimately the person who's going to use the fuel and energy. We're now also involved in hedging price risks beyond traditional forms of energy like oil and gas. So there are now contracts you can trade in renewable fuels and environmental credits. And whether you know it or not, you can even hedge the weather. I did not know that. That is yes, you can. Bonkers. So we can't make it sunny. We can't make it windy, but we can give you a financial offset if it's not. That is terrific. So can you just tell us a little bit more about like, you know, you help companies with the investments. You know, how would a company even know to link up with you? Is it just in the energy sector? Or is it just like, how, how, how does your business work? That's a great question. We started Powerhouse in 2012, and prior to that, our team had been at Morgan Stanley. So we had a book of business when we started this, but a lot of it's referral business. I teach a hedging class. I've been doing it in addition to running Powerhouse. I've been involved with teaching executives and owners of energy companies how to hedge. I've been doing this for almost 20 years, and through that class, I've met a lot of people. It's been a great ride, and I am enjoying adding new products. Like I mentioned, environmental credits didn't exist in the forms that they do today, even you know, five, 10 years ago. So we have new things to talk about, and I'm very excited. You know, Elaine, I one of the things that I think is so fun about talking to you is I'll raise some issue that seems sort of black and white to me, and you are able to explain it just as, frankly, um, the other person who's going to join us tonight is also able to do. Let's talk for a minute. I want to use the situation with Russia right now and Putin to sort of illustrate some of the things that I've noticed. They're more nuanced than I think the public understands. So let's start, let me start with a basic question. What do you see as Russia's role in the global energy market? And does it really give Russia the superior position that Putin seems to suggest it now has in international diplomatic relations? When you hear Putin say things like, you now should negotiate with him, which is, you know, thinly veiled, you've got to negotiate with me. I can throttle your natural gas supply. So what are your thoughts? What is Russia's sort of place here? Okay. Well, as you know, Russia is a major producer of both oil and gas. When you hear the press talk about OPEC plus, they're the the biggest part of the plus, (laughs) but they're also the number one supplier of natural gas to Europe. And that has been the case for some time. 
Now, Russia would like to deliver more natural gas through the newly constructed Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is waiting, it's constructed, but it's waiting for regulatory approval by the German government and the EU. As you can imagine, not everybody's been on board. You know, there's concern that Putin would use this new pipeline, which, by the way, bypasses the Ukraine and Poland as a potential economic weapon. And uh, there's been assurances from Russia that that would not be the case. But you can tell us better than anybody some of the history there, I'm sure. So we now have a perfect storm that is giving Putin some leverage in the negotiations. European natural gas stores were low. They had a cold winter last year. And energy production, or let me say petroleum production, has been affected by the pandemic everywhere. Crude turned negative in 2020. Natural gas got down to some very low levels. And those cheap prices, while wonderful for consumers, really slowed investment in drilling, in exploration, in maintenance of existing fields. Rig counts fell. Also, traditional energy companies have found it's more difficult to get financing, taking into account the new ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. In other words, people don't want to lend to fossil fuel companies like they did in the past. So that seems that seems fine, right? I mean, shouldn't we just begin to shift to renewables or is it just is it possible? Well, that's the thing, you know, so Europe has made a huge push into renewables. They have really tried not to enter into longer term contracts because they're trying to get more and more of their energy from solar, from wind and from hydropower. The problem that we have is it's not been windy in Europe of late. There's been a drought in some of the Nordic countries, so hydropower is down. So put this all together, you don't have stores. You're not getting additional natural gas through this new pipeline yet. And as a result, prices adjusting and moving higher. This is some of the unforeseen consequences of relying so heavily on power that can be intermittent if you don't have the right conditions. That is really interesting. I would love for you to talk about like, you know, you're, you're just talking about like the renewables and like intermittent availability. We kind of kind of have similar spikes in fossil fuels as well. How can um, we change our relationship to fossil fuels and transition to more sustainable forms of energy to address both climate change and current geopolitical dynamics? Well, I think there's two main issues. You've got the energy supply itself, and then where I get involved, the price of that supply. You know, as you know, energy is a national security issue. And you're exactly right. We have seen prices of fossil fuels go to, you know, crude went up to $150 almost in 2008. 
And remember, anybody who remembers the oil shocks of the 70s, not to mention the following recession, knows how damaging high prices can be. You know, one of the good things about our fracking revolution is we started to talk about North American energy independence. It was a good feeling not to be beholden to outside sources for our energy. And as we move to more renewable sources like wind and solar, we're going to need better battery storage. I mean, that's really the issue because they are intermittent sources. But batteries have their own issues. I mean, Dan Jurgen talked about in an article in Politico about battery security. You know, Mother Earth didn't always put her resources in places that are friendly to the United States. That's the case for oil and gas, and it's the case for rare earth that you need to construct batteries, and we're going to need a lot of them, both in cars and to store power. But the other question is the price. You know, nobody likes high energy prices. And what everyone's afraid of is that politicians take their foot off the gas when prices get high. So going into this winter, we're looking at low stocks of propane, natural gas, and diesel. La Nina, which is a weather pattern that will normally give us colder weather in the northern part and eastern part of the country, is returning. So this could be a test this year. So we're going to see what happens if indeed it gets cold and going into a winter with low supplies, if prices get higher, either it's going to strengthen our resolve to move to renewables or have the opposite effect. I mean, to answer your question, ultimately, I think technology is going to be our savior, whether it's carbon capture or the next generation of biofuels or improved energy technology or something we haven't even thought of, you know, that's what's going to get us closer to some of our climate goals. But for the moment, I think we need to be very careful from an energy security standpoint to put all of our eggs in one basket. You know, I'm a hedge advisor and hedging our bets right now. Uh, I hate to say that fossil fuels are still in the mix as we wait for technology to improve, or we're willing to spend more for the energy that we use, at least for the moment. All right, well, Elaine, that is very interesting. I think it's important to consider all of this. It's just, it's it's not a, a choice of renewables uh, or fossil fuels, and we can't pivot that quickly. And quite frankly, I think you and I've talked previously that there really isn't the broad infrastructure to make any kind of a pivot one and two, as you mentioned, it, the renewables are really conditioned on a lot of other factors that will exist beyond human beings' control. So that's an important thought, and uh, we hope that Avril will eventually hear this. She probably uh, knows as much about this as anyone already. So I want to thank you for hanging out with us again. But I have one of last course. question for you. Well, I wanted to ask you because we've had this conversation just recently. You know, I've noticed that China has had obviously these rolling blackouts or having a massive energy crisis coinciding obviously with the test of this missile, which feels a little bit like a distraction maybe for the Chinese people, but they've also outlawed Bitcoin mining. If you had to speculate, madam, why do you think that has occurred? Well, I think it's a few things. You know, China has made it clear they want to keep control over their economy and cryptocurrencies of all 
types are seen as a threat to that centralized power. It also takes a heck of a lot of energy to mine a Bitcoin. And in 2019, 75% of the world's Bitcoin energy usage to mine those coins was in China. So I, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that current energy shortages also played into that decision to, uh, to, to ban Bitcoins. Lastly, China, as well as the rest of the world, has goals to become carbon neutral later this century. I can't even believe I'm saying century. And ostensibly, uh, that's part of the motivation as well. So it's, it's a few things, but energy, I'm sure, played into that decision. Elaine, it's awesome talking to you as always. I will see you at the happy hour this week on the block. Uh, and thanks for joining us. All right. Real pleasure to have you, Elaine. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was a really, really uh, interesting angle uh, that we haven't previously explored uh, on the cast. We don't talk a whole lot about the financial markets, um, but you know, if we're talking broadly about national security, it, it definitely makes sense, um, especially since all of these things are in one big system. Uh, it is interesting to contemplate how America's big corporations are going to manage climate change, since not only are they contributors to the economy, but they, they also you know, sustain the economy. And the economics are tied up in the national security in, in ways that are really fascinating to explore. So we also want to transition to a new topic about airline pollution, which is a big factor in climate problems, but not all airlines have been willing to develop a plan. We thought we should uh, engage in a brief and inconsequential act of naked nepotism by proxy. And we're accomplishing this by calling up Elisa's sister, Marianne Schaefer, since she is the system chief pilot for United Airlines and a lawyer. Because United actually has a long-term plan to deal with its role in climate issues, which is great since I am a United Plus member, <laughs> is it okay to let her pipe in? It is. It is as long as she agrees not to borrow my clothes or to ask and sit in the front seat of the car on this little road trip. Welcome, Marianne. Can you tell us uh, how one of America's biggest airlines is going to tackle climate change since it is a major national security concern? Hi, Yvette. Thanks for having me. It is fun to be here with you and my sister. United is a leader among all airlines on addressing climate change and reducing our impact on the environment. Here are some of the things that I'm most proud of. We have a commitment to reducing our carbon emissions 100% by 2050. We are also investing in direct air capture technology to help build the first industrial-sized DAC plant in the U.S. That's pretty incredible. October 13th, just this past week, we became the first commercial airline to operate 100% sustainable aviation fuel flight when one of our 737 MAX 8s took off from Houston as experimental flight UAL 2689. It was really quite a flight. And we now have agreed to purchase one and a half times the amount of all the rest of the world's airlines publicly announced SAF or sustainable aviation fuel commitments combined. And these are just some of the reasons why we were named Carbon Disclosure Project's 2020 Climate A-List. 
That's okay. Incredible. I got a quick question for you here. Whoa, whoa, let's back up. All right. That experimental flight, where did that go and who piloted that plane, sister? <laughs> so it left Houston and it went around the Gulf and came back to Houston. And it was piloted by our test pilots. So no, it wasn't me. I didn't, I didn't pull rank on that one, but I would have loved to have flown that flight. That is wicked cool. As an Air Force veteran, I am here, here so hard for <laughs> the pilot. And um, as a, you know, admitted watcher of that horrible television show, Jag, I love the pilot who is also a lawyer. So thank you so much <laughs> for sharing uh, your story. And, and, you, and you know, let me do a shout out to Margaret. Um, Mary was a young engineer and I think would love to have flown in the military at the time. She wanted to do that. They did not let women fly. Now, look, uh, anybody who was a part of that decision, I, I hope you're seeing the light uh, now and you realize that uh, the head systems pilot at United Airlines is a woman and is doing really well. Of course, I'm proud of her. So anyway, Margaret, I know you're listening. I just want to put that in there because I know you know how important women's service is, particularly in combat. So I had to get that in, hon. Here, here. All right. Thanks, Mayor. Thank you. Okay, but let's move on. Speaking of the intelligence community, the Intelligencer, which is a magazine that's published by AFIO, which is the Retired Spooks Association, uh, published some of the text of President Biden's remarks to the CIA in late July. So I just thought it might be interesting for our listeners to hear what was said, or at least some of it. So and here's the quote. You've served the American people no matter which political party holds power in Congress or the White House. It is so vital that you are and should be totally free of any political pressure or partisan interference. And to his intelligence team of 17 agencies, the president said, give it to me straight. I'm not looking for pablum. And when you're not sure, say you're not sure. Yeah, the president went on to say, I can't make decisions I need to make if I'm not getting the best unvarnished, unbiased judgments that you can give. I'm not looking to hear nice things. I'm looking to hear what you think to be the truth. All right. Well, that's kind of what we have this week. Uh, that's our cast. I just uh, want to say to everybody out there, you know, look, together we succeed, divided we fall. Um, let's come together as Americans. We've had enough division. Um, and I think one of the places that's really great to be is a national security lawyer, where, quite frankly, we don't all speak a link with Franca um, and we do all come together. So a challenge to our listeners to think about where the law can work in harmony with the Constitution to serve the national security. In particular, this week, we're tossing it out there. What about the uh, issues with respect to the consumption of fossil fuels, as well as rare earth minerals and where this could take us? Well, what are some um, legal tools that might be used to enhance national security and provide for sort of the greater protection of America against our need for fossil fuels? We'd also love to remind you all that if you would like to volunteer to help Afghan refugees, the ABA's microsite will link you, to, will link you up with information so you can volunteer. Um, you can find it in the notes to our cast again tonight. Thanks to everyone for listening. We never take your attention for granted. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law every week. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. If you have topics you want us to cover or feedback, find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org. And don't forget, 
The lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.